0: Let me highlight some verses here out of the portion we just read, chapter 17. You'll notice in verse 2, it says, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying... Jump down to verse 8 now. You'll notice an identical statement. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying... And then if you would look ahead to chapter 18, we didn't go into chapter 18, perhaps I should have. But in verse 1, we read these words, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying. So you get the drift, you pick up on an emphasis here in this chapter, in the 17th chapter and beyond. And some verses could be added to the ones that I highlighted, and we will touch upon them in the course of this study this morning. The word of the Lord came unto him. In the 119th Psalm, we read in verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And if ever a man lived by such a rule, it would be the prophet Elijah. Just about every move we detect by the prophet is preceded by the statements that I've just now read, and the word of the Lord came unto him. I'm inclined to think, though, that it's, uh, even though it's not stated, It's clearly implied that Elijah's initial appearance before King Ahab must have been directed by the same principle of the word of the Lord coming to him and directing him. It does not say that in the narrative, but I think, like I say, it's clearly implied. It would have been sheer folly on the part of Elijah to have made such a bold appearance before Ahab without being directed by the word of the Lord. King Ahab's wife, after all, the wicked queen Jezebel, thought nothing of putting to death the prophets of the Lord, In a sense, you could say, I think, that Elijah appearing before Ahab was even bolder than Moses appearing before Pharaoh. Pharaoh would ask, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? In Exodus 5 and verse 2. Ahab, on the other hand, would not have been as ignorant of the Lord Jehovah as Pharaoh had been. But such was the hardness of his heart that he would take to himself a pagan wife and pretty much allow her full sway. So we read in the previous chapter, in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31, And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk, the reference to Ahab, to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Oh, here is a man that was worse than all his predecessors. And if you read the narrative in Kings and in Chronicles, you'll see that that's a point of emphasis that's made. This man was worse than the rest, and the rest were pretty bad. So surely it was by the direction of the word of the Lord that Elijah would make his bold appearance before Ahab as well as his announcement that there would be no dew nor rain these years but according to my word, verse 1. And then just as suddenly as Elijah made his appearance he would then disappear, so to speak. And that would be by the word of the Lord. Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. Verse 3. And when the time came for him to depart from the brook Cherith, you'll notice that it was the word of the Lord that directed him again. So we read in verse 8, now read it again. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. And when the time came later for Elijah to appear again before Ahab, we read in chapter 18, verse 1, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And so you begin to see then this well-established pattern in Elijah's life and ministry. He was directed by the word of the Lord. Wherever he went, it was by the direction of that word. And when the time came eventually for him to take on the 450 prophets of Baal and challenge them to call on their God, and then Elijah would call on the Lord, and the Lord would answer by fire, in his prayer that preceded the fire falling from heaven, we read in chapter 18, verse 36, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and then note the the end of it, and that I have done all these things at thy word. And the fire would fall and consume the sacrifice and lick up the water in the trench around the altar. And the people would fall on their faces and proclaim, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Only now, a little later in the narrative, when the Lord sent rain on the earth following a a three-and-a-half-year drought, Only then do we find the pattern broken of Elijah responding to the word of the Lord. Jezebel would threaten to do to Elijah what Elijah had done to the prophets of Baal. You think about that for a moment, and my, what an example of a hard-hearted woman. Uh, Did she not know that she's threatening the prophet that just called fire down from heaven? And yet such was her animosity toward the Lord and toward the servants of the Lord that she would dare to issue a threat to him. And so we read in chapter 19, in verse 2, Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And in the very next verse, we have Elijah reacting for the first time without the word of the Lord. When we read, And when he saw that, that is, when he saw the threat that Jezebel made to him, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there that's in chapter 19, and verse 3. And there, for the very first time, the pattern is broken. We don't have any instance of uh, him responding to the word of the Lord and fleeing from Jezebel. Such was his discouragement at that time that he would plead with God to take his life And in what follows, we certainly have a tremendous display of God's grace as we read of the angel of the Lord ministering to him, giving him strength for his journey. The thing I want you to see just now is that with this one exception of fleeing from Jezebel, Elijah was directed by the word of the Lord. And so must it be, so should it be, and must it be for you and for me as Christians. We too must be directed by the word of the Lord. We must live by that word. We live by it, we're directed by it. A shorter catechism tells us that the scriptures principally teach us what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said this, The word of the Lord is a light to guide you, a counselor to counsel you, a comforter to comfort you, a staff to support you, a sword to defend you, and a physician to cure you. The word is a mind to enrich you, a robe to clothe you, and a crown to crown you. So this is what I want to focus on this morning for just a few moments after the example of the prophet Elijah. Just as he lived by the word of the Lord, so must we live by that same word. Living by the word of the Lord, then, is my theme, Simply put, we must live by the word of the Lord. We must live. After the example of Elijah, we must live by the word of the Lord. And the question I want to raise and answer this morning is simply this. How is that done? What does this look like for us as Christians thousands of years later than the prophet Elijah? Well, consider with me, first of all, that we as Christians live by the word of the Lord, one, by knowing what it says. We live by the word of the Lord by knowing what it says. That is so obvious you would think it wouldn't need to be mentioned. Uh, And yet it does. And I hope. We're coming up to the end of the year, aren't we? And it is usually about this time that I begin to make my appeal uh, to make sure you're following Uh, in the new year, if not now, make sure you are following a scheduled Bible reading program and that you are regularly in the Word and that you read the entire thing through from cover to cover. There are multitudes of Bible reading schedules that you can gain access to on the Internet or if you need help, maybe you don't mess with the Internet and no one will fault you for that. Um, come to me, and I'll be happy to set you up with a Bible reading schedule. But we live by the word of the Lord by knowing what it says. Now, I'm aware that each of the verses I've cited that tells us that the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, there follows very specific instructions that are communicated to Elijah by the Holy Spirit. There's no denying this, and we have to be very careful in handling this kind of phenomenon, and I'll have more to say about it in just a moment or two. There are some professing Christians, you see, that tend to attribute every internal impulse they feel to uh, as coming from the Lord to them. The Lord told me to do this, that, or the other thing, to go here, to go there. And oftentimes, not all of the time, but oftentimes it's not hard to discern that that is definitely not the case, especially when they feel the Lord is leading them in a direction that is altogether unscriptural. Oh, you may have had that impulse arise from within your soul But I promise you, it didn't come from the Lord if it's taking you in a direction that is contrary to the revealed word of the Lord. And what I want you to see just now, though, is that the word of the Lord coming to Elijah in this fashion does not complete the picture of how the word of the Lord would come to Elijah. I cited A.W. Pink in our last study as he describes the times in which Elijah ministered. Let me quote him again because it's very important to keep the spiritual climate in mind in which the prophet ministered. Pink writes, Never before had the favored nation sunk so low. Fifty-eight years had passed since the kingdom had been rent in two following the death of Solomon. During that brief period, no less than seven kings had reigned over the ten tribes, and all of them, without exception, were wicked men. Pink goes on to describe what you might call the king of the mountain kind of game that kids play, only in this case it was for real, as one king pulls another one down, and the entire history seems to be one of conspiracy and assassinations. And that's just from the civil perspective. From a spiritual perspective... The nation had sunk into apostasy. The first ruler of the northern tribes, Jeroboam, would set up the golden calves and call them Israel's gods. I pointed out in our last study that in establishing the religion of the north, Jeroboam gave the excuse that it was too much for the Israelites of the north to travel to Jerusalem in the south. And so you could say, and this is what makes it so applicable to today, a religion of convenience was established. And don't we see that kind of phenomenon in our day? Too much for you to travel to Jerusalem. I'm going to make it easier for you, more convenient, Jeroboam, in effect, says. The priesthood was made up of the basest of men, and the nation had sunk into all manner of immorality that accompanies apostasy. Elijah, of course, would have been aware of all this. He would also have been familiar with the writings of Moses uh, which contained the covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Listen to A.W. Pink again. He captures this situation so vividly. He writes, there can be little room for doubt that Elijah must have been thoroughly familiar with the scriptures, especially the first books of the Old Testament which probably were all that were in existence at that time. Knowing how much the Lord had done for Israel, the signal favors he had bestowed upon them, he must have yearned with deep desire that they should please and glorify him. But when he learned that this was utterly lacking, and his tidings reached him of what was happening on the other side of the Jordan, as he became informed of how Jezebel had thrown down God's altar, slain his servants, and replaced them with the idolatrous priests of heathendom, his soul must have been filled with horror and his blood made to boil with indignation, for he was very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. We spent some time on that last week. And that's very important to keep in mind with regard to Elijah. He had a jealousy, a legitimate spiritual jealousy for the honor of the God he served. And when he saw God being dishonored, he was not indifferent to what he heard and saw. Probably the question which most deeply exercised Elijah, I'm reading from pink again, was how should he act? What could he, a rude, uncultured child of the desert, do? The more he pondered it, the more difficult the situation must have seemed. And no doubt Satan whispered in his ear, You can do nothing. Conditions are hopeless. But there was one thing he could do: betake himself to that grand resource of all deeply tried souls. He could pray. And he did. As James 5, verse 17 tells us, he prayed earnestly. He prayed because he was assured that the Lord God lived and ruled over all. He prayed because he realized that God is almighty, and with him nothing is impossible. He prayed because he felt his own weakness and insufficiency, and therefore turned to the one who is clothed with might and is infinitely self-sufficient. Now, there was one particular passage in the earlier books of Scripture which seems to have specially fixed on Elijah's attention. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. Listen to what it says. Take heed to yourselves, that your heart be not deceived, and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heavens that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit. God had said this is what would happen under these conditions. That was the very crime of which Israel was now guilty. They had turned aside to worship false gods. Suppose then that this divinely threatened judgment should not be executed would it not indeed appear that jehovah was but a myth or a dead tradition and elijah was very jealous for the lord god of hosts and accordingly we are told that he prayed earnestly that it might not rain james 5:17 what a vivid example of a prophet then being governed by the written word of God, as well as being moved by the Holy Spirit. In his praying, Elijah gained such an assurance that God would be true to his word, that he gained the needed assurance to go to Ahab and make the bold announcement that there would be no dew nor rain, Now, it might seem cruel on the surface of it for Elijah to pray such a prayer. But on the other hand, keep in mind that Elijah was driven by a jealousy for God's honor. And here is where Elijah challenges us today Should we be indifferent to God's honor? Should we be more concerned with the comfort of men than the honor of God? Should we regard it as a matter of little or no consequence that God's name is dragged through the mud and that his ways are despised and upended and made illegal? I don't think it would be fair to say that Elijah was insensitive to the hardships of men. He was, after all, as James, James describes him, a man subject to like passions as we are. But the thing that gripped Elijah's mind and heart more than the pain and suffering that drought would bring to the Israelites was the fact that God was being despised and his ways were being set aside and the nation had turned from the true and living God to serve the false god of Baal. He was jealous for God's honor. Should we find ourselves compelled to pray along the same lines (coughs) and for the same reasons as Elijah prayed? We should keep in mind that all that Elijah prayed when he sought the Lord to stop the heavens, hold back the rain, basically when he prayed to the Lord, Lord, do what you said you would do by holding back the rain. When he prayed that way, his prayer served as a means to an end. The end being that Israel would come to see at last who was God and who wasn't God. That's what should govern our prayer. Lord, if it takes drought, if it takes economic hardship, if it takes making the inhabitants of this land uncomfortable so that they may at last realize who God is and who God isn't, then, Lord, bring it on in order to accomplish your gracious purpose of drawing people back to you. I remember years ago when we still lived up in Illinois, I worked in a print shop there, We were trying to start a church at that time. And I remember a man that I worked with, he knew that I was a minister. And he called on me quite often to pray for him. And then on one occasion he said to me, the Lord must not be answering your prayers because life has just been miserable for me. And I said to him, you don't know how I've been praying. (laughs) Oh, that life may be miserable for you. Until such time as you face the truth of your sins and the truth of Christ as the Savior of sinners serves as a means to an end. So that's the first point then of living by the word of the Lord. We must know what his word says and we must be so acquainted with his word and with God himself that we're able to discern when it's appropriate to pray the way Elijah prayed. He had a knowledge of of the written word at that time. Let's consider next and finally, just two points today, that we live by the word of the Lord by knowing how God leads. By knowing how God leads. Now up to this point in our study, I focused on what Elijah would have known of that written word of the Lord. But I also mention that the narrative makes it clear that the Lord spoke very directly to him and gave him specific instructions that were communicated to him directly. There are no verses in the book of Deuteronomy or anywhere else that say, Get thee hence and turn thee eastward and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. Uh, That can't be found in the scriptures that were published up to that point. So when it comes to this kind of communication, the question must be asked again. How do we live by the word of the Lord? Should we expect the same kind of communication that Elijah experienced? And there are some Christians that would answer with an emphatic yes. The Lord does speak to us that way. And I would not entirely disagree with them. But I would issue a word of caution. Internal impulses can come from various sources. They can arise from the flesh. They might even be suggestions from the devil. It's in connection with this kind of communication that John's exhortation in his first epistle must be heeded when he writes, Beloved, believe not every spirit. But try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. It's in 1 John 4 and verse 1. And then John gives us the kind of guidance that shows us the need to know what God has written in order to discern how he may be leading. He writes in 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, Okay, remember the context. This follows on the heels of testing the spirits. Try the spirits. Hereby you can know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. And from that statement in John's gospel, you can certainly gather that the spirit of God will never lead you in a way that is contrary to the word of God. That is true in the realm of theology. He will never lead you to false doctrine. He will never lead you to a false view of Christ. And that's what John clearly has in view there. It's also true in the realm of ethics or morality. The Spirit of God will never lead you down a path that contradicts the law of God. Now, I might be getting ahead of myself here a little bit. Let me back up and make the point that Elijah's declaration to Ahab makes it plain that communion with God is possible. Notice again the very first words that Elijah proclaims to Ahab as we read in that verse. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain, and so forth. As the Lord God of Israel liveth, Before whom I stand. Don't pass over those words too quickly or too lightly. Pay attention to that declaration from Elijah the Lord God of Israel lives. You could say that statement lays the foundation then for communion with God. We worship and serve the true and living God. Elijah wasn't following the false gods of his day. He was in communion with the true and living God. And so is it in our day. We're not following cunningly devised fables. And when Peter makes reference to cunningly devised fables, he speaks in the context of being in the very presence of the living Christ when Christ was gloriously transfigured in the mount... So we read in 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. Just as Peter communed with Christ, so do you and I. John's first epistle is one of those letters that is just filled with purpose statements. You've heard me say along the way that one of the best ways to approach the study of any in the Bible is to find a statement that functions as a purpose statement, and that will guide you in understanding the entire book. And I often cite John's gospel as an example. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So when you understand that as being the purpose for which John wrote his gospel, well, then that can give you Uh, very clear guidelines then when it comes to reading the book. Okay, how are you going to show that to me, John? And you read the book looking for that. When it comes to John's first letter, however, uh, the task becomes kind of a daunting one because there are several purpose statements that occur within that book. Is any of them the key? Well, perhaps the very first one is, the very first purpose statement. In fact, well, turn to this with me, if you would. I want you to see this. First John chapter 1. And I'm going to start right at the very beginning, okay? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. You see where John's focus is there right out of the gate? I am telling you folks to whom I'm writing this epistle, what I saw with my eyes, what I handled with my hands, what I heard with my ears. Verse 2, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it. He's making this now a point of strong emphasis. We saw this. We were witnesses to this and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. And now note it, because now there follows the purpose statement. This is why John is declaring these things to his readers that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The word fellowship there is the same word as the word communion. John has written this to his readers not so that they could be impressed by his spiritual experience of Christ, but that they themselves could enter into that same experience of Christ. That ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Which shows us then, doesn't it, that one of the purposes that God's Word serves is to bring us into fellowship with Christ. Dr. Cairns used to explain it this way. The Bible is not simply a record of revelation. The Bible becomes revelation to our souls. And that takes place when the Spirit of God bears witness to the truth of God's Word and drives that truth home to our hearts, and we enter into fellowship with God. So it is in connection with this kind of communion that the Lord speaks to his people, that he guides them, that he directs them. And in order to know and enjoy this kind of communion with Christ, certain spiritual habits have to be established and maintained. We don't simply yield to every internal impulse. You must spend time in prayer. You must spend time in God's Word. And this must be done earnestly and consistently. Or in other words, it must be done wholeheartedly. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 tells us, For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. This must be the kind of spiritual discipline that we cultivate if we're going to commune with God after the same fashion as an Elijah or any of the other characters in the Bible. Now there's a... A psalm that I think gives very practical guidelines along these lines. It's in Psalm 37. Let me read to you a, a little bit of a passage here. The first seven verses, Psalm 37. Fret not thyself because of evildoers. Boy, if ever there was a word for today, it's that one. Uh, how much time do you spend fretting because of evildoers? Um we're honest, we probably have to say more time than I should. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass, and he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday sun. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. And as we learn to trust and delight, and commit and rest in the Lord, then we also learn to recognize his leading. I should point out also that a part of our communion with Christ takes place in the context of what we could call the communion of the saints. In other words, the Lord will use those around you to confirm that the Lord is leading you in a particular way. Your parents, your siblings, your church family, your pastor, all become valuable guides to help you discern how the Lord is leading you by His Spirit. In Acts chapter 13, it was while the church fasted and prayed that the directions were given by the Holy Spirit, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. You see how this leading of the Lord took place in the context of the church? They all perceived how the Lord was leading. Uh, They they were not so independent-minded that the church had no place in the process. And then in the very next verse, verse 4, we read, So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed under Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. So, fasting and prayer, uh, a discerning among themselves of how the Lord was leading, laying of hands on Paul and Barnabas, sending them forth, all of that in the context of the church seeking the Lord, and then the Holy Spirit places his stamp on it. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia. So this is how the Lord leads. This is how the Lord communicates. How then do we live by the word of the Lord? We do so by knowing what that word says. We recognize the authority by which that word comes. And perhaps I should have spent more time on that point. This is the word of the Lord. And we never adopt a course of action that runs contrary to that word. And I should add the necessary prerequisite that we be jealous for the Lord's honor or in other words, we fear the Lord and then we establish and maintain the right spiritual discipline that enables us to be sensitive to the Lord's leading. Oh, may the Lord then indeed help us to live by his word even as Elijah was led by that word. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we pray, O Lord, that thou wilt impress upon each and every heart that thou art the true and living God, We're not to live by theory. We're not to live by mere academics, even if our academics are orthodox. We are to live in fellowship with Christ our Savior. We have the promise of His presence to be with us. So, Lord, we pray that Thou wilt indeed help us to know what Thy Word says, And help us to know how thy spirit leads. And may we walk in the ways that are pleasing to thee, being jealous for thine honor and thy glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.